Uh, also, I should note, this is about mm-hmm. 5.30 in the afternoon for you, right? Yes. yes. 7 a.m. here. So this is literally the first time I've spoken today other than to ask my wife if she was printing anything else. So if my voice is like extra sultry or my brain is a little foggy, just just mm-hmm. so you know where I'm at. But but I, I did come prepared for this meeting. I am wearing my oh, Tableau nice. Buddy shirt. So <laughs> nice. Thank you. So it's uh, it's great to see you again, like having seen you honestly throughout the Tableau conference like last month, uh, we were uh, mm-hmm. bumping into each other quite a bit. Um, right. So this is the first time we have spoken since then. Actually, like you and I hadn't talked a ton before then. Obviously, we've like interacted with each other off and on, but like not, haven't had the opportunity to like hang out or sit down and talk or anything. So having had that opportunity, I was like, I need some more persona in my life. Like, how do I make this happen? <laughs> Um, so it's, uh, I was like, well, a podcast is a great sneaky way to force people to be my friends. So I'll invite him on the podcast and then he has to talk to me. <laughs> That's nice. And I'm just glad I'm here. <laughs> it's a famous podcast in the data world. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a famous, it's a famous niche podcast within an already niche space. Like all the other data podcasts are like, this is the data executive podcast where we're totally serious and teach you real skills. And mine's like, did you ever wonder why the TSA pats you down so often when they already have like metal detectors and everything else? And people are like, what, what is this ascertained to? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just asking questions here. I'm, I'm maybe apparently I'm like the Jesse Ventura of data podcasts. I'm just asking questions here. So. Again, 7 a.m. here. I'm going to take a big sip of this coffee from my West Ham United mm-hmm. mug, which I have not because I know anything about MLS, but because okay. it was a joke from the British sitcom, The IT Crowd. Well, uh, I think uh, soccer or football, I don't know what people call there. Uh, it's it's going uh, big now. Now Messi is going to be there. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely like a thing. Like, it's definitely way more a thing than it was years ago. I mean, even when I was a kid, it was picking up as a sport. Like, I played it for a year and stuff. But it's mm-hmm. now it's, you know, there's actually some there's money behind it in the U.S. Before it was kind of something that like, you know, like maybe 20, 25 years ago, like if you were really into soccer, it was almost more of a way to indicate that you were cooler than other people. Like, oh, you're not into soccer. And like, especially if you called it football as like an American you're you're just really trying to like flex on other people and show that you're more cultured by liking a sport that they don't like. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, then I should be the most cultured of anyone because I honestly don't care about any of these. So that that's my flex. I'm I I, I don't know. Like I don't I don't have much person. Like, <laughs> but no, it's I I wonder when we're gonna bring cricket. Right? Like we have baseball, which Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like the American sport, but ironically, we hold the World Series, which I think is only the U.S. and maybe one team in Japan or something, maybe like Puerto Rico. I don't know. I'm really speaking out of turn here. I know all I know is it's called the World Series, and it is a far cry from representative of the world. Yes, I think uh, in few countries, people play baseball. Like here, uh, there are at small level people are playing, but not at much higher level or let's say national series or something let's say you already have a bat-based sport why would you create i mean especially like (laughs) honestly soccer football whatever you want to call it the reason it's so popular globally is you literally need one ball and can play it you can play it against the wall you can play this game anywhere like that's why it's so successful 
baseball, you have to have the bat, you have to have the ball. Ideally, like if you're going to play it in any serious way, you need a field of specific dimensions. People need equipment. People need gloves. You don't want to catch that ball with your bare hand. Not the most right. wonderful feeling. So, I mean, and then you've got like the ultra elite expensive sports like hockey, where not only do you have to live someplace frosty to play this, otherwise it's going to cost a fortune to have frozen rinks all the time. But the equipment is prohibitively expensive. And if you start playing it as a child, you have to replace it like every 18 months. So ironically, for a sport where so many of the players, especially in the early days, had their teeth knocked out regularly, like very expensive. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on a roll today. So how have you been since I saw you last? Hmm, uh, I'm I'm still there. You're still there. You you have not come back yet. You're still in Las no. Vegas. Uh, I'm still in the US. Like uh, now, uh, the best part is now when I watch series, it's all relatable. Okay, uh, so I was watching one of the series uh, which uh, which is based in Los Angeles. So I was like, okay, I know this street. I know this street. So now now it's more relatable and more fun. So I miss it. Uh, obviously, the food uh, is good, but you crave your own food. That's a, that's the only thing I'll say that I missed there a bit, but other than that, it was good. Like because I I like uh, cold, and India is a place where you get like super heat as well as super cold. It varies too much. Like right now, if you don't have an air conditioner, you can't live. You can't go out in the day. Like it's not possible. <laughs> I, I just think it's like for, for Americans, the fact that you came to the desert and then Los Angeles, which is also, despite what they tell you with the palm trees, which are a lie, also the desert. And you said, I like that as a break from the heat. because <laughs> <laughs> I, I live now where I live. It's the heats are comparable to Las Vegas, but we have really high humidity because we're on the Mississippi River, which is the. I guess it's the, is it second only to the Nile? Like it is an extremely long river. It crosses down the entire right. length of the country uh, vertically. So we have the heat plus the humidity. So this time of year, like if you walked out of a building to your car, by the time you reach the car, the back of your shirt will be like soaked through. Like it's, it's, and then you touch your car door and you burn your hand on the handle. I don't like humidity, really. It's why my it's hair is so floofy. <laughs> It's the worst thing to have. Like uh, we have cities where, uh, which is like mostly on the ocean side and Mumbai, if you know. And I don't like that city because it's so humid. And for people with me, like dry skin, like it's worse. <laughs> oh man, yeah. It's uh, I had forgotten that you also went to Southern California while you're over here because why not? Like if you're going to take such a long uh, trip, you might as well spend some time and bop around. Like that's one of the things where obviously this year's conference was originally announced as two days and then it was mm-hmm. bumped back to three days in part from just sort of community outcry. Also, you know, maybe the famous Will Perkins in the mix there, who I, I'm now obligated to refer to as the famous Will Perkins whenever I mention him. And he's going to love that I brought him up in this podcast. Uh, also, that <laughs> I brought up how I snubbed him and didn't bring him back uh, for the second Ryan Ate episode, which is a joke. It's a joke. It'd be cool. But um, yeah, it's uh, if you're going to host a conference and you want it to have any sort of like draw, like you have to 
like have it for a reasonable length of time, especially for anyone traveling internationally. Try right. justifying international travel for two days. Like that's bonkers unless you can like tack other stuff onto it or there's another conference you can go to, especially right. if you want like if you're trying to ask your work to pay for any of this, they'll be like, why? I mean, I, even my work this year, um, you know, JLL is very famous mm -hmm. for the previous year making a huge deal about how data culture is so centric to central to us, how we send everyone we possibly can. This year, most people had to self-fund just because at a corporate level, way above Paul's level, they said, look, we're not we're not paying for a lot of travel this year. So most of us that were there were there on our own dime in some capacity. Even if you were a speaker and you got your own ticket, like getting funding, you you were probably paying your own way. So now imagine you're traveling from New Delhi, you know? Um, yeah. So so just any any look, any of the Salesforce people that are listening, I know you're there, like be cognizant <laughs> of that. If you cut this to a two-day conference, you're basically cutting out all international travelers. And you know that we have a lot of them. So be aware. It's right. been a PSA. But it's still a two-day almost like if, if you like you said, if you cut out the community events, it's still a two-day because the last day when I went to the village part was actually closed. Like that, that was a horrible thing because I planned to buy all the swag on that day itself. And it was like, okay, we don't have that. And then again, it was almost like people were already cleaning up. So I was like, okay, what is happening here? But we had this busy. So I, we were occupied. Those people who are in the community, they were occupied. But for the normal people, it was still a two day. So I it think was. It was. Yeah. I feel the pain in your voice. You're like, I wanted, I wanted to go buy the shirts and they were gone. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, it's one of those things where it was sort of a compromise today. Um, and it's it's one of those things where I understand if they're sort of tracking the metrics of attendance at various stuff, like they're going to have sort of a compromise result because, you know, especially if you know, you're closing down part of the amenities and stuff like that, the perception is going to be that you're not all in on this. Um, so Please come, but also like half the reason you might be here, like if you wanted to talk to a vendor or you were hoping to go do this thing or that thing, the only thing that's really available are the presentations. So it's, I think like it wasn't communicated uh, very clearly. Um, so, and I think that's been a lot of the sort of pain points that sort of the community has had with, uh, with like Tableau and Salesforce over the, maybe the past two and a half years or so. It's honestly a lot of it isn't so much what's been happening. I mean, on, there's stuff that's made people uncomfortable, like the layoffs and stuff like that. And uh, but it's the communication, like the fact that perceptually we felt like the whole product was becoming a Salesforce module. And then they said, no, no, no look, here's all the, the cool analytics features we're rolling out. It's like, but we never we never hear about this. <laughs> so, you know, once uh, once they sort of started catching on to the fact that like, Look, the, here are our concerns. Like, we're not hearing about this stuff. Things uh, started to get better. But yeah, it's the day three was sort of like, it's day three. But yeah, it's uh, if you want the conference to be successful, and this is us speaking as super fans, it has to be accessible to everybody. Like, right. if you were at the conference and you were there during the keynotes and they mentioned new features, the people that went bonkers were everybody on the floor. Like, sort of like the highly engaged in the no people you've got, you know, your guys wearing the suit jackets over the t-shirts up in the bleachers and they might've just been sent there by their work. They don't really know a lot about this. 
they're an executive and they're here to talk to somebody else. It's like, I understand this conference has to be a lot of things for a lot of people, but I think, you know, with the sort of day three move, it left a lot of people like in the dust, like for those people that, you know, don't know anything about fanalytics or have never heard of chart chat or stuff like that. Like, where are you putting them? Like they're, what are they, what are they going to show up the third day for? Right. Right. That's the thing. I also saw many people leaving on the two day itself after Iron West. I was literally shocked. Why are people moving out right now out of Mandalay Bay? But when day three came up, I was like, okay. <laughs> so that was the reason. I was at a previous job I had. We had, um, they used to send a, a bunch of coworkers. This isn't at JLL. Um, and we had like a director that went one year, but just never went to the conference. Like she, she was sent and she just blew the whole thing off and went to do other stuff. And it was like, holy cow, like this is for your work. Like I understand like they have cocktail hours and you, you can wear whatever you want and stuff like that. But like, oh my gosh, like take this with some level of seriousness. Like, wow. Right. <laughs> it's Vegas. Uh, it, it, I, I guess like people are just like, well, this is Vegas. Like it doesn't really matter. And it's like, but they, but you were sent here for a reason. Like, and I think it was after that, as a response to that, they asked people to do like a write-up of like three big takeaways they had at the conference. And you could kind of tell where people were if all three takeaways were from like um, devs on stage or something I'm like, okay, I got you. <laughs> Let's see where you're at here. That's all right. But yeah, it's I, I think it's that understanding that, you know, for like folks like you and me, we're sort of uh, among the most highly engaged users and we're not representative of the average user um, and understanding that, first of all, not everything's always going to be right. for us. And that's that's appropriate. It shouldn't be. Because if yes. you made everything for us, you're going to exclude all those other folks. But also figuring out how to bring those other folks in to be more engaged. I'm not saying they have to become like, you know, Tableau ambassadors or whatever, but just being right. more aware of, you know, the ecosystem, being more engaged with the tool, like using it at a higher level and, and that sort of thing, you know, like right. bringing people along, having some sense of progression. Right. For, uh, let's say, uh, my two of the directors also came in. Because one of uh, one of them was speaking, and uh, apart from those main, we can say the main keynote, IronWiz, since we are doing embedded analytics, they had that one point as well. But apart from that, it was more of a developers, and and not many people know about the Tableau community altogether, and the leaders that we call as ambassadors or visionaries. So yes, we can't restrict all the things to them because there are other groups as well as there are students as well. They might not come because it's super pricey and I don't think they have, they had any leverage for them as well. So that's the thing. Yes. Okay. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Did you attend on the day three, the Tableau to the core morning session with the Tableau leadership and executives? That's a very weird question because I couldn't make it. <laughs> you know, you know that day. I, Was that I, the night I, you were out doing karaoke until like early AM hours? Yes. Okay. I'm so 41. I, I, the only reason I would be up that late is if like, I was like in the hospital with someone and either I'm dying or they're dying. Like there's literally no appeal to me being awake at that. Like there's nothing. I. It's like, okay. 
at Disney World, they're like, oh, man, this ride's like a three hour wait, but it's totally worth it. I'm like, if Jesus himself came back and did a remix of the Sermon on the Mount and it's like you could say that you were there, I'm like hard pass. Like, I'm not waiting three hours for anything. Like, there's nothing I want to do. Same thing with being up that late. But there, there are all reasons I bring this up with. And that is a huge divergence. Apparently, I'm I'm even more all over the place this early in the morning. OK, mm-hmm. but during that session, um which wasn't recorded again, another ball dropped. Okay. I'm being fair at the conference. Uh, there were a lot of hits. Some of the misses, literally nothing recorded except the keynotes. Um, yes. So going back to that, um, there was a guy that got up and expressed the concern <laughs> that Tableau community was dead or dying. And among it, he mentioned there's no Zen masters anymore. Uh, you don't have Jedi's like all he mentioned all this stuff that either were you know, obviously Zen Masters were sort of renamed to visionaries and they used to mention call some of the sessions like Jedi sessions and stuff like that, meaning like, hey, these are really cool tricks and stuff like that. I can see obviously why you drop Jedi. You don't want to be sued by Disney. That's very clear. But it's like this guy was saying a lot of stuff that to anyone that's even sort of moderately in the know is like, well, where were you on day one when they literally called Tableau visionaries to the floor and took a selfie? But it sort of made me think, going back to the idea of communication, um, how there's been a communication problem, like how over several years, like Tableau has sort of maybe dropped off a little bit in communicating some of these ideas. And even stuff like that we don't think of how we're both Tableau visionaries, how that was renamed about two years ago from Tableau Zen Master, Tableau Visionary. Tableau Zen Master had been around for a very long time. It was a name that had been built up as very iconic. The switchover happened almost in the dead of night. You know, it's like there was sort of an email sent out like, hey, we're renaming it. And also when the announcements for nominations came out that year, they didn't even want to mention like it's like this new thing that's going to be a thing and it's going to be great. But we don't actually have the name for it yet. So um, in wanting to move away from the Zen master name. Because you only mentioned it one time because you don't want to use that expression anymore. Anyone that didn't catch the initial notice that you're renaming it just assumes it's gone. You know, and I'm like, I don't look, I'm not a PR person. I don't know what you do. Obviously, I'm not bad at Internet marketing. Somehow I made Zach Bowders a thing and I made you think I was fashionable, which is honestly the jokes on you there, my friend. But (laughs) But uh, trust me, I was going to bring that up. Uh, But yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where, like, I understand why you wanted to move away from this at the same time, you know, saying that sort of Zen master is, you know, culturally cultural appropriation. It's obviously has religious symbolism and stuff. But at the same time, Salesforce is not shy about saying Ohana a lot. And I'm sure there are a lot of Pacific Islanders that might have a strong opinion about like, you know, their their term for family being used by, you know, one of the biggest corporations in the world. Just just on the table. I'm not throwing stones here, but it's one of those things where it's not enough to communicate that once if you want sort of your your civilians to get on board with the idea. And that's what was one of my big thoughts from that meeting. You know, there were obviously other concerns, but this guy came forward and there were a lot of people that clapped, you know, saying like you're you're killing the community. Where are all these things? And it's like, oh my gosh. This is one of those folks who's sort of more casually or passively engaged. They're not they're not a person. They're not a Zach. They're not a Kevin Flurlidge or a, a Sarah Bartlett. They aren't uh, they aren't in this every day. They're not sort of wrapped up in it. 
And so when they show up and they're expecting a lot of this stuff that they're used to and it's not there, like they don't understand that some of this has been a transition. Some of these things have been renamed. Some of these ideas have evolved. Um, and I was like, dang, like, what do you do with that? I don't know. Right. Um, if you if you take uh, my observation, because I'm a LinkedIn power user, you will see most of the people, including me, we have written that in the headline, in the LinkedIn headline that we have, Tableau Visionary, and then in braces, we have FKA, Tableau and Nest. Because that's right, people don't know what Tableau Visionary is. Okay, it might be something new. Okay, you are a visionary, that's fine. But Zen Master was a thing that actually people used to think about and it actually stuck to them. Like, okay, Zen Master. So it had that weightage and it was being carried over for so many years, as you said, and like the things, uh, like especially the stone that people used to get. So that was a good representative of what actually meant as a Zen Master. And now it's gone. Yeah, and it's... Uh... That, it takes a while to build stuff like that, you know, like I'm sure Zen Master didn't happen overnight and it takes a while for Visionary to become a thing because especially in the very beginning, if you said Tableau Visionary, it sounded like the kind of thing that like influencers put in their profile, you know, like the guys that do those really staged headshots talking about their like their five week course to like transform you and they're like they they've got they've like used the teeth whitening filter and everything. And it's like Tableau Visionary is so and so will transform your work life. And it's like, it sounds like hyperbole. It doesn't sound like it's actually a thing. And that's not a knock against the name. Like, I think everyone has really warmed up to it that's been around to it. Like, at first, going from Zen Master to Visionary, Zen Master honestly sounded a lot cooler. Um, but, you know, I think we've come around. I think, you know, but at the same time, yeah, it's like it takes a while for stuff to catch on. And already in an industry where there's lots of different names, like Ultrix just spun out their Mavericks, which is their name for their new community and stuff. People be branding out there, right? So um, it takes a while for brands to catch on sometime. And I think maybe more communication around that would help allay some of those fears of the less engaged users who don't know that sometimes stuff gets renamed, sometimes stuff changes. You don't want Disney to sue you. So you don't use Jedi willy nilly. Or maybe they moved away from Jedi because, you know, Disney's had enough like sort of Star Wars flops recently. It became more embarrassing. Like maybe they're, they're going to choose something else like Speed Racers or something. I don't know. Like just just pick some other like property and start using that. Yeah, with, with the Mavericks that you mentioned, I was like, OK, they stole yours. OK, you know, it's uh, I, I like to think we pulled from the same source of inspiration. I, you know, I've got my. My Maverick pin on my desk, like Ryan wore at the conference, which was a total unexpected surprise. Uh, but yeah, it's like, I think when I read their, their write-up and I'm like, yeah, this is along the exact same ethic of where I was. Like, you know, watching Top Gun Maverick or whatever, I was at the theater and because I'm a data nerd, a lot of my thoughts sort of go back to that. And that's also my life, you know? So it's like, this is my career. This is what I'm invested in. And I was watching this movie and it's like, they ask someone who wasn't really a teacher to be a teacher. It's like he was he was taken out of the plane. He was put in a classroom and said, now be a teacher. And he tried to be a teacher the way that he had seen other people do it. You know, he was trying to do this by the books um, and the particular mission he was given. If he taught them by the books based on the timeline they were given and the difficulty of their objective, 
not only might the mission fail, but he was going to burn out a lot of his pilots, literally in this case, you know, not not figuratively like analysts burn out where we just say screw it. And then we become like car washers or like pet petters at Petco or something like in this case, literally, they're going to be shot down. And he had to transform his way of thinking and use what his actual talents and skills were like. What can I do? I'm a really great pilot. Like, how can I teach them? I can teach them by doing and demonstrating. So by demonstrating that this thing that they believe to be impossible was actually doable. It's like when Tony Hawk first did the 1080. So I don't know if you know Tony Hawk, the skateboarder, but, um, you know, the 1080, like uh, horizontal rotation on a vert ramp was previously thought to be impossible. Like no one could do it. And uh, if I watched the Tony Hawk documentary, I thought it was interesting. Like I'm not a skateboarder, but I, I love uh, all sorts of documentaries. And in this documentary, it's like it shows the first time he landed it. And people sort of think, oh, yeah, Tony Hawk did the 1080. What they don't realize, it was at the end of a competition. And he's they said, Tony Hawk's going to attempt the 1080. And he goes up on the ramp and he fails. And he does it again and he fails. He does it again and he fails. And he does it like maybe 10 times in a row. And then he finally gets it. And this wasn't like 10 times in a row in his backyard. This is 10 times in a row, like the X Games. So this is his like industry event. It's like the crowds are all there. All enthusiasm is gone around the fifth time. But eventually he nails it. And after Tony Hawk landed the 1080, you start to see all these other skateboarders, even like 13-year-olds, all of a sudden doing the 1080. And it's not because physics changed. It's because once people got past the point of, of understanding that it was possible, like then it was just a matter of figuring out how to do it. Like up until then, they didn't believe you could do it. And like to me, that's what like Top Gun Maverick was like. Like, you know, he couldn't like talk them through using the textbook and teach them how to do this mission because based on the direct, like his boss, the Admiral said, this is the job. I need you to do the job. And Maverick was getting micromanaged to a degree. Like he was dealing with, you know, so, like the generals below them saying, this is how we teach. You're going to teach it this way. And he says, if we teach it this way, we're probably going to fail the mission, which is more important here that we do this exactly by the books and fail. Or if we succeed and, you know, not only complete the objective, but save your pilots, like, don't you want to come out of this with pilots that are like more effective and like ready for the next thing you throw at them versus like, having like a couple billion dollars of planes and pilots shot out of the sky publicly, like which of these do you want here? So yeah, that was my whole thing behind uh, the Maverick and uh, with the Ultrix Mavericks. I'm like, yeah, it's like, I understand where you're coming from. Like they're, they're sort of encouraging a culture of, you know, getting stuff done and creativity and experimentation. And uh, yeah, it's like, I bought the shirt immediately. Like I saw that they had them up on their website. It's like 13 dot, like take my money. It's like, I immediately ordered one. <laughs> and uh, I was like, yes, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's like my first impulse, like it, trust me, a younger Zach would have been like, oh man, they're screwing me and taking my idea. Like, and part of that might be ego or part of that just might be like, you know, you feel like you own something or I don't know, but it's like, I saw that and other people like, oh dude, that's the, it's the thing. I'm like, yeah, it's like, I love as, as wide as this idea wants to go, I want to encourage that because we've talked about data rock stars for so long and it's it's a fun expression. And I like that, right? Like it's a lot of fun. Right. It's like the sort of Ramones punk rock. I have it on my laptop. It's like that and a Dragon's Drop sticker, the main thing on my laptop, the Hey Ho Tableau. It's like, I love it. It's fun. But the idea between like a rock star and like Maverick is Maverick brought a lot of other people along with him. Like it's like he's creating, I'm not going to say disciples, you know, it's like, 
but he's creating others that are then going to be able to transfer these skills and teach them. And the idea of the data rock star, and I think a lot of data folks have experienced this at one point or another. You, if someone calls you like, oh man, you're a total rock star. Like this person's a unicorn. Like those are warning bell expressions for us. Like when we hear those, they're like, oh God, single point of failure. So like if someone's like, oh, like Prasan's a unicorn, he can do anything we throw at him. It's like your thought is probably like, you're probably going to start relying on me too much. And the rest of the team is going to start like atrophying. Like that's been my experience in other places where like, you know, if there's a couple people that are sort of exemplary or maybe not even that, like maybe just above average, they start getting more of the difficult assignments and stuff. And you don't invest in building up the other folks. You never give any of the folks like something risky or challenging because you don't want to risk the project. You just continually throw it to the to like the sort of upper tier. And as a result, no one else moves up into that tier. And the folks at the top start to become overburdened. They feel burned out and eventually they leave or alternatively, they quiet quit as the kids call it now, which is where you just start doing the bare minimum of your job, which people have done since the dawn of time. But now it's got a catchphrase to it. Yeah, it's kind of relatable because I didn't went to that much depth with the Maverick phrase altogether. And I have to see Top Gun again. I need to see. But yes, uh, the thing you mentioned about leading and then sharing what you've done, how you've achieved it, it makes people feel, okay, he's a normal guy. And if he can do it, others can do too. And it's kind of relatable for me because I did the same. I don't yeah. use this phrase altogether, but I did the same because when I, when I got to do this and I saw that many people are there who can who actually want to do it, but they seem to be in the same mind state that it's not possible. It's not happening. So there was the point where I actually took in so that I can let them know, okay, I'm not a guy who is a total nerd or actually who is totally into books. Like I'm not the one who is always reading, but still you can make it. It's just about a bit of consistency and you need to feel it actually. In few words, I can mention this because if you're not interested, you shouldn't do it. That's the most important part. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm right there with you. That's my whole thing was uh, visit what you love, right? Like find something that excites you and use that as your means to grow. And that was something early from my career where in my Tableau conference talk, I showed a quote from a boss that I had where they, the real quote, like, I know uh, my friend David works with Jeff Schaefer now, and uh, he was showing Jeff like one of the things I posted online. And it was a slide that said, I don't find you interesting and people that I don't find interesting don't go anywhere. And Jeff is like, is that real? And David's like, we worked together at the time <laughs> I was there. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, 100%. And it's uh, my one of my takeaways from that, in addition to sort of the, the spiral that that put me in, like I was early in my career, I didn't know what I was doing, um, is about sort of taking ownership of not only um, your own personal growth, but your sort of career trajectory, like no one else is going to do it for you. Um, and it's one of those things that I don't think is often communicated, particularly to people early in their careers. Like you're just assuming if I do, if I do good work and I'm nice at work, I'll probably, you know, my career will probably go places. I'll probably be rewarded and things will probably move along. And that's often not really the case. Like, and uh, as much as many places talk about sort of uh, helping you grow in your skills and some places really put their money where their mouth is like at JLL, we've got a lot of programs and stuff to help you develop. Uh, a lot of places expect you to continually grow 
but don't provide you any means to do so. Like, it's just an expectation. Like somehow you're going to continue to grow. And I think that's where, you know, especially sort of within the Tableau community as a product and as a community, we've got so many resources as in people and so many programs and so many resources where you as an individual, if you're willing to put yourself out there and even just do a little bit, like it doesn't take that much, you can see yourself grow and it pays dividends at work. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the big things for me about sort of the sort of maverick ideal is taking like radical ownership of your own, you know, your own career and responsibilities. Like um, if stuff's not going where you want it to go, take a look and say, well, what's my role in that too? Like there's, there's always going to be like, everyone's got a boss to some degree. Even if you're, if you work by right. yourself, your client becomes your boss now. And also probably the people that own your, your dwelling, like if you have a mortgage or an apartment, but, but like, uh, what am I doing to sort of make this what I want it to be like, and you know, you can't always have it all. Like it's not always going to work out perfectly, but that was one of the big things for me. And also with like the whole Maverick ideal, like I had some people sort of express concerns that I was saying, like, this is like a whole go rogue approach and ignore leadership. I'm like, Maverick's only there because the Admiral called him here. Like he's, he's here to do this job. He's been given a specific task. It's like, imagine you're given an assignment for a client. Like your client needs this. The difference between that is Iceman, the Admiral is saying, this is the job, get it done. The guys under him were saying, and this is how you teach it and do it and everything. It's, it's more about the, are you willing to sort of figure out difficult things and find ways to get them done versus it's, it's almost impossible to have a playbook that works for everything all the time. Right. And I think that's right. one of the professional maturity things that you develop the longer you do this kind of stuff is, you know, the same approaches you've used elsewhere aren't always going to be the most effective for what you're doing now, but you can learn from them and sort of figure out different things. Talking about Tableau and communication and how Tableau and Salesforce maybe hadn't been the strongest in communication for the last few years. And they're sort of picking up on that and improving. I know for me, many times when stuff hasn't gone as smoothly with clients and stuff, it's very rarely been a result of, I just made a dashboard that wasn't good. It was almost always a, we weren't communicating clearly enough. Whether I didn't fully understand what the client needed, they weren't able to articulate it. There was someone in the middle that sort of transposed some of the directions as to what we needed and got things muddled. Like whatever you can do to create the clearest means of communication between you and the ultimate stakeholder is really what you need to sort of, you know, build your way to success. At least that's been my experience so far. Yeah. Same here because, uh, Things happen when communication, like you have a channel, maybe you have a scrum master in between, you have a product manager in between, and then things didn't go the way you wanted because you're not actually hitting the point where they need you the most. It's not actually about the dashboard or the tool, actually. Like you can take any tool to prepare a product that is useful for them, but if it's not helping them altogether, it's not useful, even if you're spending millions. So yes, communication is the most important part. That That's what I've learned too within my small period of data analytics journey. I, I've had product projects where like I had a project manager that gave me like, this is the need, this is what we need to make, this is how it needs to be. I've delivered that. And then the client came back and said, why aren't you listening to me? This isn't what I want at all. And, you know, it's 
you know, it's one of those things where you're like, it's very easy to be like, what on earth are you talking about? Like, this is what you told me. And then realizing there's other people in this process. There's other people in the middle. And sometimes like in terms of how we work, like in my current organization, we've sort of got a, like a, an account team between us and the client. And sometimes the wires can get crossed. You're playing the telephone game, right? It's like, if you have a, an account team that's sort of really on it, you know, stuff can work really amazingly. They can be a bonus to you, right? Like they can right. make your life much easier. And other times if the account team isn't as dialed in or, you know, alternatively, maybe they have stuff they want and they're not, they're not communicating to you. This is for me, not for the client. Um, when you make it and then show it to the client, the client gets frustrated because they're like, well, what, what is, what's the point of this? Why did you do this? And, you know, it's sort of understanding the, uh, the difference between, those things and and uh, figuring out the lines of communication. Communication is key at the end of the day because that's all we're doing. Like we're just communicating, yes. right? Like we're yes. creating stuff that's meant to communicate ideas based on just raw information, um, and understanding that there's a whole stack to that communication beyond what you just like put on this dashboard and and hand over to someone. Like you have to communicate with the need. You have to communicate uh, the delivery. Like it's it's how you can't just send someone a dashboard like I'm done. It's like because they don't know how to use it. They don't know what it's for. Like they, you know, the worst buy-in you'll ever get is if you don't have a clear dashboard delivery process where you're sort of onboarding people to it and holding their hands and like almost making a ceremony of it. Like, hey, look, we've got this thing for you now. We're excited to share with you. And here's, you know, what it does. And this is how it's going to make your life easier. I mean, there, there's, there's marketing to something people have already bought. You know, it's right. uh, everyone has made a dashboard before and delivered it to someone and it never got used ever. It happens. <laughs> it happens most of the time. And uh, one of the uh, major problems there is uh, I, I had actually a fight with my product team because uh, what actually the client wanted, I never got to know. And then it was a rework. So I was like, okay, I don't want to hear you. Let me get to the stakeholder who is actually going to use it. Because you will throw in ideas that might be good or might not be, but at the end, if they're not using it, I really value my work and my time as well. So I won't do it. So I've been rough with my work, but that got me far as well, because now people hear to me, okay, what, what we need to do, please tell us <laughs> so that that's good in a sort of way as well. Yeah. It's honestly, I've, I've been in situations before where I had, um, I had a really unhappy client and I was so confused because from all appearances, I was doing everything that I was asked. And when I asked, can I just talk to the client directly? Can we just do like a working session or something? And even just communicating with them directly, their demeanor changed so dramatically from the uh, before they they were kind of they felt standoffish. Um, they had sent angry emails. They had, you know, done other stuff. But just being able to talk to them directly and like, hey, let's let's you and me. We're just going to do a working session. Um, let's talk about, you know, what we've done so far, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. What are you what are you looking for? What are you trying to accomplish? What questions are you asking? Why are you asking them? And then what actions are you trying to take off of those? Like, these are all the thoughts that like sort of season date analysts like take as like second nature. But especially when you're sort of uh, counting on other people to ask them along the way, 
you know, you you might assume that these questions have been asked properly versus just someone filled out a document or said, what, what are you looking for? And they're like, I want to see spend versus budget. And you're like, OK, create a dashboard of spend versus budget instead of asking me, well, what are you trying to accomplish? Well, we need to make better choices about uh, we uh, what facilities are we spending too much money on? We want to be able to understand that and get to the root causes. Like that's an entirely different question from spend versus budget. But those are the sort of uh, questions you learn to ask from experience um, and practice. You know, it's it's a practice field like law or accounting or medicine. You know, doctors go to med school and then they're thrown into the middle of things and there's a lot they don't know when they start off, which is why they have such a lengthy process before they're sort of on their own. Um, and we don't have that benefit. So it's up to us to figure out how to continue learning on our own. Well, well, thanks to the whole Tableau community, because uh, I was new and I got to know these things very early because of the whole community itself, like you and all the people out there. And I was very dramatic at work because I knew how to, go on to those things like before building a dashboard, these are my prerequisites. You need to have a brand guideline. You need to have these questions and then only we will pull it off. But still, organizations are organizations and they're always like, okay, we have the data. Let's start building and then we'll figure it out. Yeah. But yes. You know, and, yeah. and also like both as an individual and as an organization, and this is something I used to hate to hear, but it makes so much sense. Uh, what got you to here won't get you to there. You know, there's different sort of skills, tactics, uh, responsibilities that you have to take on depending on the seat that you're in or your level of experience and what's working for you really well early in your career. You might have to evolve and change over time. I'm working with, uh, we've got some data schoolers right now at work, you know, and I'm sort of working more in a supervisory capacity of them. Like, I don't really have interest in being like a people leader. Like, I don't, management's not interesting to me. Like I don't like creating people's schedules and hand doling out assignments and stuff like that. I don't particularly love that, but the data schoolers are sort of a good compromise for me where, you know, they're here for six months. I'm able to work with them. I'm able to teach them a lot of our sort of internal standards. I'm able to guide them on projects and that sort of stuff, serving much more as a mentor than like directly as a manager. And uh, that's been rewarding for me because I do like that kind of stuff. It's just, I don't like the more sort of hard managerial political battles and all that it's, it's all that stuff is exhausting to me i want to make things um and that's that's really my passion uh so i, I i'd like to do that as long as i possibly could i i like uh i like making stuff but it's one of the, also one of those things where what's your career trajectory for that like how long can you be just a maker like obviously if i went into management my salary would go up almost immediately right um right. and uh, it's it's one of those things where it's a check and balance, you know, not check and balance, but a, uh, I, I was previously in IT before I was in BI and I saw plenty of people that went into management because it seemed like the only path forward. And so often it did not transfer for them because they had a really a specific skill, something they were very good at. And they didn't see a path forward doing that. They thought the only way that they could continue to grow, make more money, advance in their career and, you know, also help their family out was to become a manager. And so many times it didn't work because managing people is not the same thing as building processes, understanding requirements, all that. It's While it can be complementary, it's not necessarily uh, a direct uh, lift and shift. So yeah, I don't know. I'm speaking out loud. It's early. I've got lots of ideas. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, well, that's the common notion, I think, all over the globe. Like, because uh, if I talk about India, either, well, it has changed over so many years now, but when I was in high school, either you can be an engineer or a doctor, that was the common notion. And then after engineering, what you got to do is you will do a master's in business administration and then you will go up to management. So I think that's pretty much common, but things have changed now. People are valuing more what they need to grow up in the hierarchy rather than what they love. So there is that, I, I can feel that actually, most of the people are there who value their own self and then they realize, okay, this is something that I really want to do. And it might not be a common trajectory or it might not pay me that much as well. But still, if I love it, uh, like I'll do it. it. It's my common phrase because uh, my whole second path of my career, because I, I used to be a mechanical engineer, totally different. Like I was not in IT. I used to be on the groundwork, setting up plants, power plants, actually, oil industry. I was in oil industry and then I moved up to data industry. So a rather radical change. But in the second phase, I really decided that I won't go up with what the society demands plus what the common notion is. It doesn't matter if this pays me good or not, but I'll just value or I'll just follow the path which I really love. The funny part is that if you do such things, it pays well as well. Yeah, it's... It, ha it has an exponential curve actually. <laughs> so to that end, Tableau Buddy. What's Tableau Buddy? Huh. So Tableau Buddy came out to be a, a phrase because uh, when I started, I had lots of people. I I I would have spoke to you or Kevin or Sarah, lots of many other people, and they were actually there for me, helped me, guided me. Jim is my mentor as well. So he actually helped me not only in those tableau related queries, but also how should I feel or how I'm feeling about it, my career altogether. I used to have all these questions as well. So I discovered that it's about me and I have solved these problems and now I'm on a good path altogether. But there are lots of people who still need help and not everybody is like me, like just going out there and messaging people out there or maybe building stuff and then commenting on other stuff. That's how you network actually, right? So people don't usually do it. They have that hesitation always. Okay, what if this comment is not good? What if the people get rude? What if I doesn't get an answer? These all things are always there. So that's how Tableau Buddy came into existence because I just discovered that it it's really hard to help people just through posts and just through articles. I'm not an article guy or blog guy. I really would like to write, but I can't, I don't know. I can write posts, but article in a way is too tough for me. So I took a really easy path. I, I, I didn't know, like uh, I was really stunned when I came to the conference and so many people knew about Tableau Buddy. So I was really stunned because it, it was nothing more of a help 
and I just wanted to help people. And I went all out with one-to-one conversations. I had this 30 to 45 minutes call with them. I used to ask them what the problems are, how can they, how I can help them. And at the end, within these 40 minutes, I used to create a roadmap for them. So you know, you need to go through these points. These are the resources you can hit on. And this is a whole pool. And there you can just follow on, build more network. And altogether, you can just have more tabloid conversations if you want more help. And through that, it actually helped. I'm really, uh, I'll say I'm blessed. Like I thought about this and altogether I got messages when people actually implemented that particular roadmap. And some of them even got promoted. That was the biggest win. I got a message. We apl- I applied this and I got a promotion. I was like, wow, <laughs> this, this is the most valuable price that I can have. And then not even if uh, it was all students and uh, those early learners I had conversations with vice presidents of some company as well. So they were more of the person uh, who you will see in those organizations where they are already at a higher management, but now they have to take the leadership role of a analytics kind of a team. So they have hesitation. They have problems dealing with those things. So I actually have the scenarios were really, really different for, and the variations were different. And that's also helped me to see what all the problems are there. And altogether, it grew up to a state where I actually had to like put it in an Excel sheet, all the calendars, like I, I, I searched how I can get this data from my iCal calendar. And then I just searched it over. I have this data as well. I want to make a whiz out of it, but I haven't yet. And then I saw that it's almost like 361. I was like, okay, <laughs> that's a lot. And, but the point is, uh, it actually came into existence to help and it, it's been really good. And uh, it got me here where I am. I never thought I can be a tableau Zen master or a visionary or even an ambassador. I really never thought. When I started, uh, I was like, okay, featured author, that's a very cool thing. Maybe if I build, I can get to that. But reaching here was unimaginable. But I'm thankful for all the people that helped me throughout my career and uh, through bringing this Tableau Buddy into existence, that now people know it. And now because of this and because of the love I've got from so many of them, now I'm thinking of ways how I can actually scale it up and maybe because having those 30 to 45 minute one-to-one conversations is really tough. So maybe escalate it more, think about ideas, how I can cover more bigger pool of people because there are so many people out there still because I'm all almost on LinkedIn every time. But uh, thanks to Tableau Conference, uh, I have been in a kind of a state where I, I can't, be with social media but it's fine i'm pulling myself up and now let's see because tableau buddy will evolve and i'm th- i have some ideas so it will come to surface soon that's awesome I, I can see how you light up talking about this like the interpersonal is so important i mean like so much of the growth you and i have both experienced and honestly so many of the people that you know we know or have been on this podcast is um it's really difficult to sort of grow all by yourself. Um, like 
you can say, I'm going to read some books and dedicate myself to this and everything. But if you're really just doing it all on your own, you're really closing off so many valuable resources. And that's not to say you have to like, you know, obviously you and I have drank the Kool-Aid more than a lot of people, right? Like we're, we're very involved and invested in like sort of the Tableau community, but whatever you're looking at in terms of whatever skills you're wanting to learn or whatever, finding other people that are involved in those skills and, and learning from and with them is really going to elevate your ability to learn, not only through exposure to different techniques and ideas, but also just the passion of those people, like seeing other people that are excited about doing something makes you more excited to do it um, versus if you're just trying to force yourself, it's like trying to force yourself to eat your vegetables. Like I, I know I like a few years ago, like probably 10, 12 years ago, they started uh, cooking uh, Brussels sprouts with bacon all the time. And all of a sudden everyone loved Brussels sprouts. And it turns out like if you take something that previously people like didn't find that appealing, but you change how you're doing it or make it a little fun or, you know, it, it really, uh, elevates people's experience and now people eat brussels sprouts without bacon because they've become accustomed to eating brussels sprouts more it's just maybe the old boiled brussels sprouts of the 1970s wasn't super appealing but by mixing things up a little bit we were able to create a new brussels sprout that now people don't have to have the bacon with but the bacon was the gateway drug to get them get them in so you know, finding ways to engage with other people, like people that are either a little further down the path than them or really passionate about something can unlock that in other people. And I think that's a really cool thing you're doing. I think, you know, soft skills are super undervalued, but like I said, in my Tableau talk, soft skills are the gateway to hard skills. <laughs> like everyone's just like, oh yeah, you need to skill up. You should, you know, read books, do this blog, do these exercises and everything. But it's like, yeah, but where do you even start? Like, what do you do? I mean, I have people message me on LinkedIn all the time and it's weird. They're like, teach me all your skills. Like they'll, they'll send me a message like that. And I'm like, and I'll, I'll respond like, well, the first thing I would do is start doing makeover Monday. It's like, no, no, no. I just want you to teach me all your skills. And I'm like, that's how you learn the skills. Like I can't just like, there, there is no way for me to matrix how to do stuff into your head. You have to start doing it. So like so much of this is learning through experience and repetition and you know, building on those skills. And also speed is the first thing that comes. You get better at getting faster at stuff, which is valuable at work when someone has an emergency project they need. And, you know, you now know how to do stuff faster. You've worked a lot of the stuff out of your system. You know where to click, where to drag, you know, what charts to make, you know, you know what people are looking for, you know, that's soft skill and hard skill ideas together. And it's, you know, I, th I, I like that, you know, uh, you're out there sort of representing the soft skill side of things, the people side of things, the um, sort of the emotional intelligence side of things, like building people up and helping them find paths forward. Right. I think uh, it's sort of, uh, I was looking for as well, because uh, I'm kind of philosophical as well. So for me, purpose is really important. And at some time I was kind of lost like what I want from my life altogether, but with doing things. And when I saw all these people like you, all of the people on Twitter, it actually gave me hope that, okay, people are out there helping people. And uh, it really made me feel that it, it can be kind of my purpose. And now it is. Service is my purpose. And that's really close to my heart. And one of the things I learned through doing this is, and somewhat in a different way, you also mentioned this, like you grow a lot when you help other as well as 
when you learn from others. And I just saw that when, when you're actually helping so many people out there, help might not come from them, but the world works in a way that it will come back to you and it will help you grow personally, professionally, everything. And I, I almost tell this everyone, okay, if you if you are somewhere on the path where you can actually help one or two people, please do that. Because it will come back. It's kind of a hope or a philosophical thing, but I do believe that now. I, I was kind of a atheist as well. But things changed for me and now I believe that, okay, hope is everywhere and you have to believe things. And if you believe things will happen, kind of not not of a data podcast kind of talk but yes that's me you know this is a this is a people podcast so i think that was perfect like honestly every podcast can talk about data um but this is the podcast where we talk about the people behind the data and i think you've done a great job um highlighting what makes you different how you're how you work how you think and i think that's important to people to understand you know the, not just, you know, the thing, but the people behind the thing and see that, you know, everyone's journey is different. Uh, there's all sorts of different people doing this, that all sorts of different mindsets and uh, seeing that there is space for you and that you uh, can do this. So with all that, I say, son, that was pretty awesome. So I can't think of anything to add. So let's start wrapping up. Is there anything you would like to promote or anyone you would like to shout out before we close up today? Well, uh, there's anything I want to promote because uh, people are out there on LinkedIn and I'm always on LinkedIn. So through that, we can do that. And I'm kind of in a state where right now, I don't have the perfect word, but I'm uh, orchestrating as well as strategizing what I should do. Because uh, I have come to a stop where now I have to think how I can actually scale up. I have some ideas which I want to try out. And I have this really cool idea uh, which I'm trying to focus on. That's I'll just give a bloomer here. Like It, it will be called as a tabloid sandbox. Cool. So uh, it's kind of an incubator that I'm trying to think about. I, I don't know how, how to wrap it around so that I can help people more and not only give them a one-to-one mentorship call for 30, 40 minutes, because I saw that few of them were able to come out, but to help them be great at this. And I know like I can link them to so many people out there. I have to do more. So it's kind of an incubator thing that I'm thinking about, which I'll surely bring it out this year. And shout out shout out is for everyone out there like uh, personally uh, I, I have always this in mind like i never said that that to this person like priya padam so i'll give a shout out to her because uh, she was kind of an inspiration and a star to me when i started because she was already a featured author and then she became an ambassador and it really inspired me her journey like she she i think she is a computer graduate but uh, I saw her work and I was really stunned and that really made me to do all those things, like build more visualizations and get onto this journey. 
because I really loved how, how she she was doing all together. So that's one. And now if if I have to talk about like it will be a long list. Like I've met so many people, including you. And the best part of coming there for the conference was now it's not it's not just about the data thing in the conversations, but it it's more of a informal talk as well. Like we can connect more. So I'm really looking forward to meeting more people again in next year. And then I already have have done some of the things in San Diego itself, thanks to Tableau Conference. So I'll show you around if Fantastic. you haven't been there. <laughs> I haven't, and I'm definitely looking forward to the tour. Like, Prasan, like, thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being uh, open and vulnerable. And I think it's important for people to hear other people's journeys and also to hear their inspirations. So uh, thanks for coming, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. It, it's been great hearing your jokes as well as those funny things. How, how you actually use metaphors to explain things. That's really nice. Well, that's just how my crazy brain works. <laughs> <laughs>